Well, we continue our study of the New Testament book of Philippians, uh, which was written uh, by the Apostle Paul uh, during his two-year imprisonment in Rome. Last Sunday, uh, we entered chapter 3. There are only four chapters in this little book, uh, but we entered chapter 3, which highlights one of the main themes of the book of Philippians, and that is the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Uh, We began to examine the first three verses of the chapter in a message entitled, Religion of Works or Relationship with Christ. With the memorial observance last Sunday, we did not get very far And with the observance of the Lord's Supper today, we will not get much uh, further. Uh, But please uh, open your Bibles uh, to Philippians chapter 3. And let's uh, again read these first uh, three verses. The Apostle Paul wrote, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard for you. That sentence is preparing them for what's about to come. He says, what I'm about to say to you, I've, I've, I've said this before, but I'm going to repeat it uh, because it's important for me to give you this safeguard. And, and then here's the, the safeguard. Here's the warning. Verse 2, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So follow now in your sermon notes and let's begin with a review of the introduction, uh, the historical context, and the relevance for today, all of which we covered last Sunday. So this is going to be a very brief review. So if you missed the message last Sunday, uh, you can go to the church website and view it there. Look at the introduction there in your sermon notes. Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 3, paints a contrast between two groups who profess to be Christians. Both groups profess to be Christians, and he does this in order to clarify who is a true child of God. The first group in verse 2 are called dogs, evil workers, and the false circumcision. The second group in verse 3 are called the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit, glory in Christ, and put no confidence in the flesh. The contrast between the two groups reveal the distinction between those who profess to be the people of God and those who are the people of God. Between those who have an external mark identifying them with God and those who have had an internal makeover making them like God. Between those who have a religion of works and those who have a relationship with Christ. We must always be alert to the reality that everything that calls itself Christian is not necessarily the real deal. And we saw last week that Jesus himself emphasized this very reality at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, 
not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says many, and notice that word many, not just a few. He says many will say to me on that day, referring to judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. It's not that they knew him and then somehow lost their salvation. No, he said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. According to Jesus, there will be many people who sincerely believe they know him and, on their, and they are on their way to heaven but are deceived. They call him Lord. They do acts of service in Jesus' name. No one will be more surprised than they are when Jesus shuts the door to heaven and they are cast into hell. So look now at the historical context which identifies who Paul is referring to in verse 2. The group he calls dogs, evil workers, the false circumcision. Verse 2 refers to the Judaizers. The Judaizers uh, sincerely believed Jesus died on the cross. They believed He rose from the dead. They believed Jesus was the true Messiah. But they also taught that before a Gentile could be saved, he first had to become a Jew. He had to observe the law of Moses, including circumcision for all males. Although the Judaizers professed to believe in Christ, they taught a false gospel where salvation was on the basis of works, not on grace alone through faith. Now, we will talk more about the Judaizers and their teaching next week when we look at verse 2. But as with all false teaching, it's ultimately inspired by who? The devil, Satan. Do not ever forget, the Bible teaches that Satan disguises himself as a what? What's the Bible say? An angel of light. He is at his very best teaching God's truth while mixing it with error. He is at his best operating inside, not outside the church. And his greatest victory is to get a person to believe he is on the road to heaven while in reality he's on the road to hell. Now today, we don't have many Judaizers running around telling us that in addition to believing in Jesus, we must keep the law of Moses and be circumcised to be saved but Satan is still in the business of presenting a counterfeit gospel with a counterfeit Jesus, which leads people to a false assurance of salvation. Therefore, look at the relevance for today. What is the relevance of this truth for today? And three points we'll mention briefly. First, there are only two religions in the world. I'll explain that in a moment. There are only two religions in the world. One is the religion of human achievement, where the key word is do, 
And salvation is earned by works or through works. The other is the religion of divine accomplishment where the key word is done. And salvation is a pure gift of grace received from God through faith in Christ alone. Therefore, we must beware of those who try to impose a legalistic code, some to-do list, as a means to earn salvation or even progress in sanctification, to progress in growth. Again, what I mean by that statement, you say, now wait a minute, and you say there are only two religions in the world. There are, you say, there, there are thousands of religions in the world. What I mean by that is, you take, I'm talking about now authentic Christianity, the real deal that is rooted in a relationship with Christ that comes as a result of putting one's faith in Jesus and what he accomplished for you through his death on the cross when he paid for the penalty of your sin. And he rose again to grant forgiveness. So you take authentic Christianity, you put it right here. You can take every other single religion in the entire world and you can dump them into one pot. You can take all the Christian cults and dump them into one pot right along with them and, they're, and you say, they're, they're different, and they are different in many ways. But there is one common denominator in every one of them, and it's the word do. No matter what their heaven is, no matter how they describe their heaven, there's some to-do list that you have to accomplish to earn God's approval and to be able to gain whatever that religion's heaven or salvation is. But again, standing against all the other religions in the world is Christianity. And the word is done. It was done for you by Jesus Christ. And salvation is not earned. No, it's yours through trust as you embrace the gift that God is extending to you. Now look at the second relevance of these verses for us today. Philippians 3.3 may be the most concise definition of an authentic Christian in the entire New Testament. And folks, I cannot tell you, I almost can't wait to get to next Sunday. Because uh, next Sunday, is this will be our primary focus, verse 3. And this is a, an incredible text where in such a concise way, Paul defines what an authentic believer is. And he says, for we are the true circumcision. Over against the Judaizers who claim to have the truth, they're really false. They're a counterfeit. But we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. But as much as I want to, I have to save that for next week. And then the third relevance is just summed up in that verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Test yourselves. You need to test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Throughout the New Testament, professing believers, those who profess faith in Christ, are often exhorted, examine yourself. Determine if your faith is genuine. 
And that's what we need to do, not only today, but especially next weeks. Now, for the remainder of our time today, which is not much because of the observance of the Lord's Supper, we're just going to focus on verse 1. And you see verse 1 there written out in your sermon notes and also on the big screen. It says, finally, my brethren, what's the next word? Rejoice. And rejoice, what? In what? The Lord. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things, again, is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. True, true, two truths I want you to glean from this verse before we go into the Lord's Supper. First, Christian joy. Christian joy is the surpassing delight in my relationship with Christ. That is unrelated to the circumstances of life. That is true, authentic joy. It's a, it's a delight. I delight in my relationship with Christ, which is totally unrelated to the circumstances of my life. Notice he said rejoice what? In the Lord. I don't find happiness in circumstances. They go up and down. Often they're very difficult. Often they're very painful. But no matter my circumstances, as a believer being in Christ, I find my joy in that relationship with Him. Now here we find a very simple but a very profound truth. Our rejoicing, again, is not connected to circumstances, but to a, what? Relationship. Now, when we began our study of Philippians, we observed that the heart and soul of the book is the fourfold picture of Christ in relationship to the believer. And there's one picture in each of the four chapters. And let me just remind you of that. In chapter 1, Jesus is presented as the believer's life. The key verse is verse 21. Paul said, for to me, to live is what? Is Christ. And to die is gain. To live is Christ for the believer because Jesus shed his blood and died on the cross for you. Not only to pay the penalty for your sin, not only to grant you the gift of forgiveness, not only to give you an eternal home in heaven, but to purchase you as his possession, to be a part of his bride. Why? He desired to have an intimate relationship with you. Meditate on that in a moment. Almighty God desired to have a relationship with you. And that's why Jesus, as we saw in chapter 2, poured all of his deity into human flesh to become a man. That he might be able, through his death, burial, and resurrection, to reconcile us to God that we might enter a relationship with Him. In other words, folks, He died and rose again to capture your heart. He died and rose again to become the center of your life, to become your foremost love. So as a believer, your life literally is to evolve around that relationship 
with Christ. Now in chapter 2, Christ is the believer's mind. The key verse, verse 5, have this attitude, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus, as a believer, is now your life, because now He's your love. He is the one who occupies your mind and your thoughts. He becomes the focus of your attention as you behold His unsurpassing beauty and glory. And we can all understand this even on a human level. When you're captured by that often individual who becomes the love of your life. And your marriage partner. Then in chapter 3, Christ is what? The believer's goal. The key verse, verse 14. I press on, Paul said, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. See, the more you focus your mind, the more you focus your thoughts on Jesus, the more you realize the infinite prize that is yours in Jesus. And the more you realize the infinite prize you possess in Jesus, the more He becomes the all-consuming goal, passion, and pursuit of your life and love. And then in chapter 4, Christ is my strength. The key verse, verse 13. I can do what? All things through Him who strengthens me. Where do you find the strength to pursue the goal, to win the prize? You're back to your relationship with Christ, not your efforts. But your relationship with Christ where His all-sufficient grace and power is perfected in your weakness. And although circumstances in life may change, your relationship with Him can never be altered. Once caught, there is no escape. And even the pain of your circumstances only serve to run you right into the arms of Jesus. To enjoy that relationship and a joy that's not related to circumstances, but to the prize, to the life and love of your life. Listen to this marvelous, marvelous quote by the great old Bible teacher F.B. Meyer. He said, The joy of the Lord arises from leaving all burdens at His feet, from believing that He has forgiven the past as absolutely as the tide obliterates children's writing in the sand. That nothing can come which He does not appoint or permit. That He is doing all things as wisely and kindly as possible. That in Him we have been lifted out of the realm of sin, sorrow, and death into a realm of divine light and love. That we have already commenced the eternal life. And that before us forever there is a fellowship with Him so rapturous and exalting that human language can only describe it as unspeakable. I'll give you a great example of this. The second hymn we sang this morning, He Keeps Me Singing, written by Luther Bridges, who was a Methodist evangelist. Many years ago, at the age of 27, 
when he was preaching a revival service, he lost his wife and three boys in a house fire. Luther Bridges wrote that psalm. Did he experience grief? Yes, overwhelming grief. Did he experience depression? Yes, overwhelming depression that he thought would drown him. But the waves of that grief, the waves of that depression just washed him right into the arms of Jesus. And he wrote, there's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers, sweet and low, fear not, I am with thee. Peace be still in all of life's ebb and flow. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. That's what Christianity is. Christian joy is the surpassing delight in my relationship with Christ that is unrelated to the circumstances of life. Look at the second truth that we glean from Philippians 3.1. We must be diligent, therefore. We must be very diligent to safeguard our relationship with Christ from anything that would take our focus off Christ and rob us of our joy in Him. Christianity was never meant to be a routine to endure, but a relationship to enjoy. Christianity was never meant to be a routine to endure, or a list of regulations to accomplish, but a relationship to enjoy. And folks, We've all, many of us have walked long enough in our Christian lives where we realize we can easily get distracted and miss that focus on relationship. Uh, Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 real quick. Uh, You'll see another place where Paul expresses this concern that we not drift from that focus of being Christ-centered in our relationship with Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, let me begin reading at verse 2. Paul says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ, that I might present to you you as a pure virgin. Notice, through faith in Jesus, you've been married to Christ. You've been made one with Christ. But then verse 3, Paul says, But I'm afraid. Lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from, notice, the simplicity and purity of what? Devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. And matter of fact, folks, in the context, he's referring to the Judaizers when he talks about that other gospel and that other Jesus. That's exactly who he's talking about here. Because you need to understand, what would happen is, everywhere Paul would preach and establish churches in these Gentile cities, the Judaizers would wait till Paul left, and then here they would come in, right behind him. And they would say, oh, what Paul told you, that's true, but there's a little more you need to embrace. 
Yeah, you got to believe in Jesus, but you got to add some things to that. You got to keep the law of Moses. You got men need to be circumcised. You got to be a Jew first before you can be saved. And this caused tremendous havoc in the New Testament church. As we're going to see next week, the Judaizers were Paul's greatest thorn in the flesh. Uh, just for time's sake, turn over to that last passage, Revelations 2. Because we're not only talking about being careful that you're led astray to embrace a false gospel, but we need to understand as Christians, as we grow, we need to still maintain that focus. Uh, you know, it's like I mentioned what Alan said. Uh, he said a, a, a more mature uh, believer uh, years ago, I don't know how mature he was, uh, he told Alan, you know, Alan... Uh, when you came to know Christ, yeah, that, that was all Christ, none of you. But Alan, now that you're saved, now it's all up to you. And, and folks, that's, that, that is not true, but that's the error that many believers, sincere, authentic believers, fall into as they get into this trap of this, uh, these to-do lists that determines their spirituality instead of focusing on that relationship and drawing in that relationship His grace and power to live a life pleasing to Him. And it happened in this church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, this is Christ's message to the church at Ephesus. And keep in mind, this was the greatest church probably in the entire New Testament era. You know who their first three pastors were? Get this. The Apostle Paul, followed by Timothy, and then followed by the Apostle John until he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Paul, Timothy, and the Apostle John. This was a church that was truly blessed in many, many ways. And pick up at verse 2. Jesus says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. In other words, he begins by commending them. He says, there's many things I can commend you for. You are faithful to serve the cause of Christ. You're faithful to stand on the word of God and even confront error. You're, you're willing to be faithful even in the midst of persecution. You're willing to suffer for Jesus. But then verse 4 comes. But he says, but I have this against you. That you have what left your what? first love. Here's a church that gave Jesus everything he wanted except the one thing he wanted most and that was their affection, their hearts, their love, their adoration, their worship. Because Jesus realized it's in relationship, it's through worship that his person and power is communicated, giving me the ability and the energy to accomplish His will, to accomplish His plan for my life. He never expected me to do that on my own, but to draw my relationship with Him each and every step of the way. And notice, they didn't lose it. They what? They left it. And they left it when they began to take their focus off the relationship, off of worship and adoration and appreciation, and they began to see their Christianity as just a list of duties. It became a routine to endure rather than a relationship to enjoy. 
And that word left, by the way, in the Greek text is aphemai. That is the same word that was used in New Testament day of a man writing his wife out a bill of divorcement. So what Jesus is saying is, you've gotten so busy working for me that you've neglected your love relationship with me. I mean, I appreciate all that you're doing, but not at the expense of me not having your life, not having your love, not having your heart. That was my primary purpose in saving you, was to have a relationship with you. And then he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. In other words, he says, if you don't, if you don't deal with this heart defect, this loss of love for me, the light of your testimony, although bright right now, it's going to begin to flicker. Because it's only in that relationship that you're going to know that fuel, right, of the Holy Spirit keeping that lamp burning bright. And so as we go into the Lord's Supper, a good word for it, isn't it? Because as we come to the Lord's Supper, Jesus is the host. Jesus is here. He's present. And if you've left your first love, if you've lost that focus on relationship and adoration, what was the, what's, what's the first thing you need to do? What was the first thing that Jesus said in his letter to the church at Ephesus? He said what? Remember. Remember. And what's the key word in the observance of the Lord's Supper? What's the key word? Remember. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And this is the importance of observing the Lord's Supper. So that we do keep the focus where it should be on relationship, on love, on worship. And as we observe the Lord's Supper today, there's going to be no singing. Just the instrumentalists will be playing. And I would just encourage you during this time. Love Him. Acknowledge if it's true. You know... I have left my first love. I have neglected my relationship with Christ. I acknowledge that, Lord Jesus. And today, I want to return to my first love. I, want, I do today want to give you the one thing you desire most, my affection, my heart. In light of who you are, what you did for me through your death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. So just love Him. You might want to open your Bibles. And read the third chapter of Philippians. Just during this time, sometime, and, and with the, just read the third chapter of Philippians. Just as, and you'll see the passion Paul had for Jesus. And what Paul is talking about there is not some extraordinary Christianity. Folks, that's normal Christianity. That's what Christianity is meant to be. What you read there where he talks about, I, I count all things lost. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, yeah, I count everything else like garbage in comparison to knowing Him. 
And he talks about my one goal in life is to know the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable to his death, to know the power of the resurrection. Therefore, I forget what lies behind me. I press forward to that which is ahead. I'm looking to Jesus. I'm focusing on that relationship because it's him in that relationship that's going to enable me to what? Accomplish the goal. And the goal is what? Jesus. That's the prize. To embrace him as he has embraced me. To know him as he knows me. To love him as he loves me. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we surrender this time to you now as we observe the Lord's Supper. Lord, we acknowledge this is a time to remember. But Lord, as we remember, as we look back to see who Jesus is, what he did for us, let us also realize that Jesus is present right now. That he did all of that in the past to have a relationship with us right now. In this moment. And in all the moments going forward. So, Father, I pray that if there are any here that do not know you as their Lord and Savior, that they right now would make their heart your home. As they would invite you into their lives to forgive them of their sin, to take control of their lives, that their hearts would be captured by you and that you would become their life, and their love. And then, Lord, for us who are believers, who are followers of Christ, Lord, give us grace now to examine our lives. Lord, look on us. And if we have neglected that relationship, if we've drifted from it, point that out. And I know you're only wanting to point it out, not to bring condemnation to us, but to bring us back to true joy, a joy that can only be found as we focus on our relationship with you, for it's in Christ's name we do pray, amen. Let me ask the uh, elders and deacons if uh, they will take their places. Here at Edgewood, we observe an open communion. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, you are welcome to participate. Uh, this is not an observance for unbelievers. If you are here and you do not know Christ, this is not an observance you should participate in. You're, of course, we are glad that you're here and uh, able to uh, observe. Uh, but again, uh, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're more than happy to uh, participate. Uh, this is an ordinance that uh, our Lord, our Savior Jesus, uh, commanded us to observe on a regular basis for the very purpose that I've just shared with you this morning, that we would always keep our focus on our relationship with Him and on worship and love, realizing that, uh, again, that's where we find grace, that's where we find strength uh, to go forward uh, in life uh, to please Him. So uh, you know how we serve. The deacons will bring you down by a row and you know, you'll take the bread and the juice, uh, partake right here, and then go back. And again, no singing, just instruments. You love Him now. You allow Him to examine your life. You make things right and love Him. Love Him. Give Him your affection. 
And again, I would encourage you to read through Philippians 3. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the works of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I also have been laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are mature, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. It's our tradition here at Edgewood that when we come out of the Lord's Supper, uh, we provide an opportunity uh, basically for the church family just to love on uh, one another and to encourage one another. We believe this is a very important aspect of the Lord's Supper. We not just look back to what Christ did. We not only look forward to our hope in Christ eternally. Uh, We not only enjoy Him as a present reality, but we're to look around us and uh, minister to one another. So in just a moment, I will give you the freedom where you can stand up, move about. You may want to express appreciation to someone who's meant a lot to you, offer encouragement to someone that you may know is uh, struggling, whatever it might be. You may prefer just to remain seated and just continue to reflect on uh, on who God is, what He did for you, uh, just in your heart, just continue to express your love. And we'll uh, just allow this for several minutes, and then uh, we'll close the service at that point. And then as I give you the freedom to move about, this will serve uh, as our invitation. And if there's uh, any decision you would like to share with me, if there uh, any of the elders and deacons would be available to pray with anybody that would have a specific need, whether that be physical, emotional, or or spiritual. Uh, So right now, I'll just give you the freedom to stand, love on one another. Uh, You can love on our two little girls from Estonia, (laughs) far from home. And uh, so y'all just love on one another. You can congratulate Emily and Joel on that precious little baby. You see that little baby that just came up? Uh, And uh, we appreciate their military service. So uh, you just love on one another right now and encourage one another. Okay, let me, let me have your attention. Just stay right where you are. You don't need to sit down. Just stay right where you are, but give me, let me have everyone's attention right before we dismiss. Uh, I want to introduce a couple folks to you. Uh, I can't express the joy right now. 
Barbara, many of you know Barbara Carraway. She has a long history with our church, and she's coming back to Edgewood as her home. Barbara, come on up. This is Betty standing with her. This is uh, Betty Rowland's uh, sister, Betty Rowland's sister. And so what a joy to have uh, Barbara uh, back with us, and we trust God to bless you. Whoa, that was probably me. And, uh, anyway. and, then, and then you're going to even rejoice more. Grady, come on up. This is Grady Hamilton. The, come on up, Katie. This is the oldest son of Katie Hamilton. And uh, Grady will be going into the fifth grade. He came up and he said, uh, Brother Andy, he said about five months ago, he said, I, I, I prayed to ask Jesus to come into my heart, to forgive me of my sin, take control of my life. But I've been sort of afraid to acknowledge that, and, uh, you know, publicly. And, and this morning, totally on his own initiative, his mother didn't even know he was, he was going to do this. He just wanted, he said, and I said, I said, why have you come up here, Grady? And he says, I want people to know what I did and uh, made my public profession of faith. So, would y'all go out to the front, give our people, Betty, you can go out with Barbara, and uh, just give our people an opportunity to express their love to Grady and to Barbara. Uh, Again, uh, remember, you can uh, still get your Boston butt at the reduced price as you leave. Remember, tonight, uh, 6 o'clock, as uh, Jonathan will do that uh, book review on uh, prayer. Help us uh, promote uh, Vacation Bible School. And deacons, uh, elders, staff, uh, our meeting, uh, which will take place immediately after this service, will be down in the Educational Center. That's that old, well, what we used to call the Welcome Center. That's where we will meet. So God bless, and you're dismissed. <laughs>